Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in your word this morning, we would hear the sounds of our homeland. We pray that you would cause us to resonate with the description of the holy place in the tabernacle and then the holy of holies. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to feel deep within ourselves that we were made for your presence. We were made to dwell with you in a holy place, in a, a garden where you walked. And Lord, we pray that you would use this description of the place of your dwelling to expose our, our sin and our deviant attitudes and inclinations, and we pray that you would cause us to feel more deeply our need for the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished. And we ask too, Lord, that you would make us absolutely confident in him, completely certain that he has secured an eternal redemption. We ask that you would provoke our imaginations and stimulate our thinking and enchant us with the mystery that you have revealed. Draw us to the scriptures. Make us people who are eager to, to read them and to know them. And then, Lord, we pray that you would astonish us with the way that you cause all things to be fulfilled in Christ. And by all this, Lord, we pray that you would transform everything about us Make us people who persevere and who rejoice and who give thanks. People who show forth your glory in the world. We ask that you do all this in Christ's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 9. And we will be looking together at Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 10. And the passage falls naturally into two sections. In the first section, they describe the earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle. Uh, the author describes this. And then in the second section, in verses 6 through 10, he describes mainly what the priests do in the tabernacle. And he uh, gives some indication of what that means for us today. Uh, but as he talks about the tabernacle, I think that this author is really talking about the presence of God. He's really talking about what humanity has been yearning for, longing for, and trying to experience ever since the first man transgressed and was driven out of the garden. So uh, I think that there is this archetypal longing in us and in, as human beings to get back into the Garden of Eden. And, and I think that this passage is ultimately about that. Um, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 uh, sits in this, this sort of second half section of the book of Hebrews where having discussed the Melchizedekian high priesthood of the Lord Jesus in chapters 5 through 7, he's now really going to talk about the ministry of the Melchizedekian high priest, the Lord Jesus, here in verse, starting 
really at 8, 6, uh, 8, 7, and continuing through about 10, 18, this is all going to focus on the Melchizedekian high priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And I would draw your attention to the way that at the end of chapter 8, there's this long quotation from Jeremiah 31. And that, that quotation concludes in 8.12 with the words, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in this passage that, that we're about to go into, the author is going to develop the way that the old covenant, the old covenant sacrifices and the, the ministry of the old covenant priests, it was not capable of bringing about a full removal of sin so that people's consciences were actually clean. But through what the Lord Jesus accomplished, that is possible. And before we start into the text, let me, let me draw your attention to the way in 8.7, he, he's going to talk about the first and the second covenant. So in 8.7, he says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And just to be clear, the first covenant is the old covenant made through Moses, with the people of Israel, at Mount Sinai. The second covenant is the one promised in that quotation from Jeremiah 31. You see, for instance, in verse 8, uh, there in Hebrews 8.8, 8, he quotes it, Days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. So you got the old covenant and then the new covenant. And then look at verse 13 of chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he's going to contrast the first covenant and the second covenant. And there are going to be some other firsts and seconds that he's going to go through here in chapter 9. And then you also heard when Denny read there in chapter 10 earlier, how the author speaks in, in chapter 10 of how um, he, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And again, I think there he's talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So as we look at Hebrews 9, the author is going to be talking about the tabernacle that was part of the Old Covenant. And we might ask ourselves the question, why is he doing that? Why is he going into these details about the furniture of, of, the, of the tabernacle instituted at Mount Sinai under Moses for the people of Israel in association with the Old Covenant? And the answer is, because as you can see in, in 8.5, he says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And then later in 8.5, Moses was told, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And we're going to get other statements along these lines. The bottom line is that the author of Hebrews is, is operating on the assumption, and I think he's right, that those texts indicate that there is this heavenly archetype for the tabernacle. This heavenly holy of holies accompanied by a heavenly holy place in which God dwells and Moses was shown that on the mountain and then Moses was instructed to construct that for the people of Israel and as, as the argument develops what he's going to say is Jesus didn't just go into that tabernacle that Moses built at Mount Sinai. No, he entered into the true tabernacle in heaven. And that's where the Melchizedekian high priest did his ministry to accomplish our forgiveness. And so the author is setting us up to, to see all this by describing for us here in 9, 1 through 5, 
the old covenant tabernacle. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. The author writes, Now even the first covenant, old covenant, made at Sinai, through the ministry of Moses, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. We read some of them earlier in the service. Leviticus 16, you can read the whole book of Leviticus, Numbers, all those, all those instructions for how they were to approach the Lord. And an earthly place of holiness. There he's describing the tabernacle. That, that we, when we looked at the book of Exodus, Exodus 25 through uh, 31, you get the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And then in Exodus 35 through 40, they actually construct the tabernacle. So that's what he's describing. And now he's going to, he's going to tell us about some of the, the, the things in the tabernacle. So if you look there at verse 2, he says, For a tent was prepared. The first section, now this is interesting, because he's been talking about the first and second covenants, and now he's going to start talking about the first and second sections of the tabernacle. So I'm going to try to orient myself rightly for you guys. So if, if we just treat north as up, and west is over there, and east is over here, right? Um, the, the tabernacle would be oriented toward the east so that, and, and you'll remember also that when the man and the woman were driven out of the garden, they exited to the east so that on the day of atonement, when the high priest entered into the holy place and then entered into the holy of holies, he would be moving in a westward direction, which would, it would be almost as though he was re-entering God's presence in Eden as he does this on the Day of Atonement. So he's talking about how the first covenant had this first section, this holy place, and then eventually he's going to describe the second section. And, and in that tabernacle, you can go and read the instructions. You can, there, there's a lot, you could, a lot of research you could do on this, but basically the Holy of Holies is, is 15 feet or so by 15 feet, and then it's 15 feet high. So it's a 15-foot cube. And then the holy place is twice as long, but the same width. So it's 30 feet long and then 15 feet wide. And he's first going to tell us about that holy place uh, that you would enter, the high, the high priest would, before going into the holy of holies. So he says here in 9.2, uh, by the way, uh, as I was thinking about this sermon, I thought, you know, this is going to be a great sermon for the little kids who maybe like to draw the things that we're, we're, we're seeing in the text. You know, you could draw this tent that's got two sections, and the first section is twice as long as the second section, and the second section is a perfect square with a, if you can do perspective, you could make it into a cube. And then there in verse 2, a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand. And... Um, we, we know, we've probably all seen a menorah. You, you know what this lampstand would likely, at least to some degree, have looked like. You'd have this main stem, and then you'd have these accompanying stems that, that probably resulted in seven, a seven-pronged candelabra. And when you read about the description of this in the book of Exodus, the, it, it sounds like the stems, I mean, it's, flower words and tree words are used to describe uh, the, the whole thing. And so I think it's clear that the lampstand symbolizes a tree, a sacred tree. It probably represents 
uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the garden. And then it also gives light. So uh, just put in your mind here that the lampstand is associated with light. And then also it's associated with uh, knowledge of good and evil and, and life. And, and maybe, maybe you're already thinking of uh, other things that are associated with life and wisdom or knowledge and, 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 and life. So uh, the lampstand was there and the table and the bread of the presence. I think both of those items are ultimately about provision. So the table would, would be referred to as the table of the showbread. So we're dealing with that first section, uh, the holy place. And as you entered the holy place, if you were a priest and were allowed to enter it, you would see there the, candela- the, the, the lampstand, the candelabra. And then maybe on the opposite wall, there would be a table. And on that table, the priest daily placed this bread. And, and I think that what's being symbolized here is the way that this represents the Garden of Eden. You've, you've got the, the, the tree-like candelabra, and then you have the abundant provision that the people would have enjoyed in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. There's that question, I think it's in Psalm 78, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And that question is asked about uh, the, the Lord's ability to provide manna from heaven for the people in the wilderness. And then uh, the, the bread of the presence would also be communicating to the people that the Lord was going to meet their needs. And then we continue there, and uh, he tells us there at the end of verse 2, it is called the holy place. So that's that first tent. And then verse 3, behind the second curtain. So, you know, there are going to be these curtains that are sort of the gate, and then you, you enter in through that first curtain, and then there's going to be this dividing curtain between the first section and the second section. And we read here, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And then we want to think carefully about the next phrase where it says, having the golden altar of incense. You could misread this and, and misunderstand this to indicate that the golden, golden offer of incense is inside the curtain. I think what he means to communicate is that the golden altar of incense is associated with the curtain. And the reason it's worded this way, it's actually, uh, there are are statements that that could mislead you both in, say, Leviticus 16 and in the instructions uh, for the the building of this back in Exodus 25 through 31. But I think the, the reason it's somewhat misleading is because the altar of incense is associated both with the holy place and with the holy of holies. So you may remember that um, John the Baptist's father, in Luke chapter 1, verse 9, this is Zechariah, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. He would have done that on this golden altar of incense. And Zechariah, he's not the high priest. It's not the day of atonement. So he's not going into the Holy of Holies. He's entering into the holy place. And he would place this incense on the altar, and a cloud would, re- would result. And back in Leviticus 16, we're told, in Leviticus 16, um, uh, verses 12 and 13, it says, um, He shall bring it in- inside the veil, the incense, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, 
that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And, and I think the idea is when they put this incense on the altar, it's going to create a cloud, and that cloud is going to make it so that the priest actually cannot see God. If he were to see God, he would die because, because of God's holiness, because of sinful man's inability to sustain such an experience. And so this, this altar of incense, I think it's in, it's in the holy place in front of uh, the, the curtain, but it pertains to both sections, and that's why you have these, these statements that are sometimes confusing about where exactly that altar of incense is. At any rate, we read here that uh, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, were there, Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies, covered on all sides with gold. And it's interesting that the author is going to repeatedly mention gold. And you may remember when we were in the book of Exodus that as you get closer to God, the materials get more pure, more valuable. Um, so you start out sort of out in the court with a bronze altar, and then you start to encounter things that are silver and some gold, and then once you get into the Holy of Holies, it's all gold. Everything is covered with gold, and, and what's being communicated is this is the most holy place. This is the most uh, precious experience to, to get to go there as the high priest. The Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, Holding the manna. Now, this, I think it's really interesting the way that the author describes what is in the Ark of the Covenant. Because this golden urn holding the manna, you remember what this is about, right? This is about their experience of the manna in the wilderness. The Lord provided for them, met their needs, and now they put some of that in an urn and they place it in the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the Holy of Holies. It, it functions similarly to the table of the showbread. And then, then the next thing, uh, the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded. And you can go back and read the narrative of when this happened. And there was, a, there was sort of a contest. There were some um, renegades who rose up against Aaron and they wanted to put themselves forward. And the Lord vindicated the Aaronic priesthood. And, and established it as the authorized priesthood by causing Aaron's staff to bud. And, and so you have an indication of God's ability to provide for his people, and then an indication that God had authorized the priesthood, and then, thirdly there, and the, and the tablets of the covenant at the end of verse 4. And of course, these would have contained the Ten Commandments. So I think essentially the author has summarized the way that in the presence of God... You have provision, and you have an authorized priest, and then you have the tablets of the covenant, which really, I think, summarize the, the whole of the old covenant, the word of God. Lastly, in verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, these cherubim, you'll remember, uh, I think represent the way that when Adam was driven out of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim was flayed with a flaming sword was placed there to guard the way to the tree of life so that the man did not take of the tree and eat and live forever. And so in the same way that the Garden of Eden is guarded by these cherubim, now 
the Holy of Holies, is guarded by these cherubim. And then at the end of verse 5, the author says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, we've heard him say things like this before. You remember in chapter 5, verse 11? In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. And then in 5 through, really chapters 5 through 7, having sort of gotten in their face and and told them not to be sluggish and and tried to spur them on to to be carried forward to perfection and maturity, he then goes on to explain, I think, in chapters 5 through 7, the much that he has to say about the Melchizedekian high priesthood of the Lord Jesus. In this case, so I think these statements, uh, you know, uh, I have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain. And now, of these things we cannot speak in detail, they sort of stand in corresponding sections after the center point of the letter in 8, 1 through 6. I think at this, at, at, in this point, in 8, 5, what he means is, I'm not going to go into the heavenly tabernacle and the holy of holies. I don't, I, I'm not going to take the time and I'm not going to take the trouble to, to speak to you about the corresponding elements in the heavenly holy of holies. Instead, what he's going to talk about in chapters 9 and 10 is the ministry of the Lord Jesus, which he accomplished in the heavenly holy of holies. So whereas in 5.11, he's got, he says, I got much to say about this, and then he goes on to talk about it, really in chapter 7. This time, when he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, he's not going to tell us more about what he's just told us about. Instead, in verses 6 through 11, He's going to talk about what the old covenant priests do in the tabernacle. But before we go on, let me, let me pause for a moment and offer you some ways to respond to what we've just read in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Um, you know, it, it would be a unique experience to get to enter into the tabernacle. Not all Israelites could. In fact, only the priests could enter into the tabernacle. And the priests were only male, and they were not just Levites. They were Levites who could trace their line of descent to Aaron. So most Israelites were excluded from from entering into the holy place. And then there was only one Israelite who could ever go into the holy of holies, and that was the high priest. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of enchanting mysterious nature of these texts is witnessed to by broad cultural fascination with this, you know, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and all this. So I want to encourage you to study these passages and to be enchanted by the mystery. Be, Be provoked in your thinking at what is symbolized through what God instructed Israel to make that would represent what his dwelling place is like. Ponder these things. Reflect on them. Meditate on them. Be drawn into the text. And most importantly, perhaps, be made still and quiet by the holiness of what he's described here. The presence of God is a holy place. It is not to be entered into lightly. And then... I said most importantly, but but I think maybe this is most importantly. I misspoke. Most importantly, I would encourage you to be astonished at the way that everything we've just read about is fulfilled in Christ. He called himself 
the light of the world. So there's this, this lampstand there. I would suggest that the fulfillment of that lampstand is the Lord Jesus. I am the light of the world, he says. And then he's not only the light of the world, he is the provider. He, he referred to himself as the bread. He said, I am the bread of life. And I think in various ways, he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of the manna from heaven. I'm the fulfillment of God's provision for his people. And then uh, we're about to read about the, the ministry of the Aaronic priesthood here in verses 6 and following. The Lord Jesus is the Melchizedekian high priest who enters not into this earthly priesthood, but into in, earthly tabernacle, but into the heavenly one. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So the Lord Jesus, he fulfills the ministry of the priest, and he's also the word made flesh. So you have these tablets of the testimony there in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Lord Jesus, he, he is the word that became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He is God with us. So everything that we've just read in 9, 1 through 5 points to Christ, points to the way that God meets the needs of his people and achieves the purpose for which we were created by coming among us in the Lord Jesus. Uh, we look now at verses 6 through 10, and we move from this earthly place of holiness to the way that the author is going to discuss the ministry of that old covenant tabernacle. And I think his big idea can be seen um, in, the, in a statement that he makes in verse 8, where you see those words, the way into the holy places is not yet opened. That, that's, I think that's the big idea here. So look with me at verse 6. He says, these preparations having thus been made, and what he means is, the, the tabernacle having been built, the, the lampstand and the table and the bread and then, and then the curtain and the bronze altar of incense and uh, the Ark of the Covenant with all of its things, these, all, all those things being set in order, middle of verse 6, the priests go regularly into the first section on a daily basis. The priests of Israel would enter into the holy place and they would burn incense and they would uh, do various things things that the author describes here as performing their ritual duties. Verse 7, but into the second, that is into, notice again the first and second language, into the holy of holies, into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Uh, so, so the high priests on the Day of Atonement would enter into uh, the Holy of Holies and in order to stay alive when he does this, he has to take blood in and he's going to do various things with it. He's going to daub some of it on the horns of the altar, uh, other, other uh, parts of the blood. He's going to sprinkle actually onto the Ark of the Covenant and, and thereby he is going to cleanse the tabernacle of sins. Um, I, I think that uh, 
we should, we should work hard to understand what the author means when he refers to the unintentional sins of the people. So I just want to say a word about this, and I'd be happy to discuss this further, you know, maybe at lunch or maybe on another occasion if any of this is, if it, if it goes by too quickly. I don't think that what he means is you sinned by accident. I think what he's referring to is sins, and, and we could back this up by going and looking at the actual text, sins that people did on purpose, but then when they repent of them. So if you go and read Leviticus 5, Leviticus 6, over and over, over, you'll see these phrases. When he realizes his guilt and he comes to know it, and then he goes to the priest and he confesses his sin and he offers the sacrifice for his cleansing, then he will be forgiven. That then becomes, it's as though when you realize what you've done and you repent of it, it's as though your intentional sin is lowered to the level of unintentional. And I think it's really explained by what the author referred to in chapter 5 when he spoke in verse 2 of those who are ignorant and wayward and beset with weakness. We sin on purpose, but we do so ignorantly, not really knowing the ramifications, not really realizing what we're doing, and, and because we're deviant and wayward and we're beset with weakness, that's why we sin. We don't always, some people do, but hopefully... Hopefully believers don't. We don't sin intentionally, meaning to say, I'm in full and open rebellion against God. I'm rejecting the word of God in my life. I'm rejecting God's definition of right and wrong, and I'm rejecting this whole mosaic system. I'm done with the covenant. Usually when believers sin, well, hopefully always when believers sin, we're not saying those things. It's unbelievers who sin that way. When somebody when somebody who's a believer sins, it's because we're ignorant and we're wayward and we're beset with weakness. And hopefully, we're brought to a place where we realize what we've done and we confess it and we repent of it. And, and at that point, I think in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, at that point, your sin that you did on purpose actually becomes unintentional. Unintentional meaning it was not your intention to throw off the covenant. It was not your intention to go to war against God. It was not your intention to redefine right and wrong because you are repentant. So these unintentional sins of the people, I think, are sins they did on purpose but of which they repented. Only those could be covered by the sacrifices. So um, there's a lot more we could say about the way this worked, but I want to move on to verse 8. Look at verse 8. By this, and he seems to be referring to the way that the priests go in and perform their ritual duties in the, in the holy place, and then the way that the high priest enters into the holy of holies on the day of atonement. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. Here's what I think he means. When he says the Holy Spirit indicates, I think he means... The Holy Spirit has revealed to him, and he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is now communicating this to his audience. So I think this author is actually claiming to be making divinely inspired, interpretive revelation of the meaning that was actually there in the Old Testament. And here's, here's what I think he's getting at when he says that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. Not just anybody can go in there. There's this deep longing in us 
to be reunited with God, to dwell with God. Well, sorry, but only members of this one tribe who descend from this one man, Aaron, tribe of Levites, male descendants of Aaron, who are authorized as priests between the ages of 30 and 50. They're the only ones that can go in. Everybody else is out. And they can only go in under these certain conditions. And then only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies because the way is not yet opened. I think that's what he's communicating. The Holy Spirit is indicating that the answer to the question, Psalm 24 that we sang and that has been referenced a couple of times in the service, in a prayer, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, under the old covenant, the answer really is nobody because the way is not yet opened. And only the, only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies and only under these certain conditions. I think that's what the author is saying here when he says in verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, um, what I think he means when he, when he refers to the first section standing is something like this. Before that veil got ripped in two when Christ died on the cross. In other words, as long as the the tabernacle and then the temple are the valid, authorized dwelling place of God by which God's people approach God, the way is not yet opened. As long as that has standing, in the sense that as long as it is the place where God dwells, the way is not yet opened. What he's going to develop through this whole section of Hebrews 9 and 10 is the way that Jesus opened the way. Because of what Jesus did, the way into the holy places is open. So just look, for instance, at what he says in 10, 19, and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which has done what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. So, So the author is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, and he's saying that whole tabernacle system was communicating that the way was not yet opened. And then in verse 9, he says, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, I beat my head against this phrase, you know, since the last time I preached on Hebrews. I've been trying to figure out what the author is talking about here. This is a, I, this, I think this is a very difficult um, statement that he makes. Let's keep reading and then we'll come back to it, okay? So he's, he's just said in verse 8, uh, by this, and I take him to mean the construction of the tabernacle and the way that only the priest can go in and only a high priest can go into the Holy of Holies, the way is not yet opened as long as the, I'm going to say the tabernacle is still standing or the temple is still standing, verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now notice here the way he says gifts and sacrifices are offered. He doesn't say gifts and sacrifices used to be offered. And so I think he's describing a situation where the temple and its ministry is ongoing. They're still going up there in Jerusalem. They're still offering those sacrifices. So in other words, it sounds to me like the author has written this prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So, so I think what, what we're dealing with is a kind of overlapping of the ages. Christ has died on the cross. The veil has been rent in two. And believers 
can enter in through Christ. Meanwhile, the Jewish people, they've rejected the Messiah, and they go right on offering those sacrifices at the temple, and now these believers in Jesus are being tempted to go back to Judaism. And the author is saying, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to Judaism. Stick with Jesus. So I think when he says there in verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age, he's referring to this overlapping of the ages. The already in the sense that uh, Christ has entered, but the not yet in the sense that we have not yet entered into the heavenly holy place, the heavenly holy of holies. So there's, there's this dynamic where Christ has entered, he has gone in, fulfilling Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. He goes right in. Psalm 118, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Psalm 118, I, I'm not sure which one I said. 118 is where uh, the speaker of the psalm says that. I think that's the Lord Jesus entering in. But, but we have not yet experienced that. We have not yet um, walked into the heavenly holy of holies to dwell with God in the new and better Eden. So I think there's this uh, symbolism from the tabernacle system that is true about the ongoing worship of the Jews and that is true about the already but not yet experience of the Christian. Salvation has already been achieved. It's not yet been consummated. And then notice what he says there about those old covenant rituals in verse 9. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He's going to describe the way that the Lord Jesus is going to make perfect uh, those who draw near through him, and that's in chapter 10, verse 2, and the way that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus actually does cleanse and make perfect our, our consciences. But these old covenant rituals, verse 10, deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And I think by, by time of reformation, he means the consummation of all things. When the already, or sorry, when the not, the not yet becomes the already. When all things are accomplished. And when that day comes, the gates will open. And because of the one who entered and offered up his own blood, those who belong to him will follow in his train. With cleansed consciences, with sins forgiven, the new covenant having been inaugurated, the old covenant having been fulfilled, the people will be perfected, those who go in following the Lord Jesus. And at that moment, heaven and earth will be united. And man will be reconciled to God. If you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, uh, the way for you to respond is to recognize that you've committed intentional sins of which you can be forgiven if you will repent of them and confess them and go to Christ to be cleansed. Your only hope is the Lord Jesus. He is the only way that any of us will get into the presence of God there to dwell 
in eternal bliss with him. And if you're here and, and for whatever reason, you're tempted to try to make the old covenant, whether it's by obedience to the Mosaic law or perhaps trying to have the Mosaic law instituted as the law of the land, whatever, whatever path you're trying to pursue of making the old covenant the way to life, the author of Hebrews is testifying that it will not take you home. The old covenant will not get you there. It will not perfect your conscience. It will not bring about the renewal of the world. That is not the way. Look to Christ. Be ye saved. Hope in him. Live for him. Serve him with all that you are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing these things to us about yourself. We thank you for showing us these mysterious, symbolic representations of the heavenly beings who surround your throne, worshiping you day and night. We thank you for the, the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. We thank you for the Ark of the Covenant, Lord, and the, the tablets and the budded staff and jar of manna within. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to more fully appreciate what it means that the Lord Jesus fulfills all these things. We pray that you would make us people who are committed to him, ready to obey everything that he commanded, eager to teach others all that he commanded. And Lord, we pray that in that, we would experience your nearness your presence. We pray that you would cause us to be those who believe and who enter in by faith in Christ. Lord, we ask that you'd give us discernment. We pray that you'd give us insight. We pray that you'd make us useful in this generation. We pray that you'd make us faithful and also fruitful. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.